guys, it's me, Layla Cheek, your host. Thank you for joining me again on um, another edition of Ample Cause, Our Justification. And we're going to be doing our Bible study today um, from our Word Go series, uh, The Kingdom Stories. We are in week two, day three, and we're going to be studying Matthew 13, 27 through 30. I'll read that real quick for you. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay. Well, that's our passage we're going to be studying today. And before we begin, why don't you join me with um, in prayer? Father God, thank you so much for this time um, coming together to study your word. For your word, God, and for your parables and for all your kingdom truths, Lord, what dear treasures they are. Um, and especially this parable about the weeds and true wheat, Lord, remind us, God, once again, that, you know, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for what her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate, Lord. Remind us of the, the true, um, true beauty and the true, um, ways to live, Lord, that, that you honor and reverence for you, Lord, and let's not be deceived by false teachers or false disciples out there, Lord, but help us to be, um, one that encourages, um, others and, and edifies and, and makes, spreads the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys, well, our first question is... verses, what does the owner's reply teach about judgment, timing, and his concern for the crop? And question seven is, why can it be difficult for us to distinguish between believers and unbelievers? And I think we kind of um, touched on before in our previous lessons how um, the weed and the wheat kind of grow together and we don't really know true disciples from false teachers sometimes because it's not just in the church, but in the world, you know, there's going to be, um, the mixture of, of both and we're supposed to kind of take, take heed and to, um, guard ourselves sometimes in those areas. And, um, in this passage, it talks about how the servant wants to remove these weeds, but the owner tells them, no, 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 don't do that quite yet. Um, you won't be able to quite distinguish between the wheat and the weeds at first. And, you know, timing is key, and and also, you know, um, he wants to protect protect the wheat um, by removing the weeds, but pulling the weeds before the harvest could uproot some of the wheat. So, when we look at that in the context of believers and, and maybe um, false teachers or false disciples or um, people that aren't um, yet um, devoted to Christ or giving their life to Christ, you see how there can be um, this intermingling in the world, and rightfully so, you know, God says that there's going to be a remnant, right? It's going to be a, a minority, usually, um, that are in the faith, and 
this the servant wants to remove remove the weed the weeds right but but he's cautioned not to and i think ultimately god tells us you know um we are to be salt and light in the world where we go and we are to you know be ambassadors for christ and we're kind of reminded in romans 4 when um paul is kind of uh, addressing the issue of Abraham and the Jews knew Abraham to be well the father of, of the Jews what they you know deemed him as and Paul tells them you know was this uh promise to Abraham before he was circumcised or was it after he says blessed is the one who sin the Lord will never count against them is this blessedness only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. He received the circumcision as a sign, a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So essentially, you know, the Jewish people um, deem Abraham, Father Abraham, like this righteous man that their lineage came from. And Paul's telling them here, um, hey, was his... Uh, righteousness credited to him. Think of like accounting terms. You know, was it debited credit? You know, was it? And God has this ledger. You know, did God credit him this righteousness before he was circumcised or after? And he's saying uh, it wasn't after; it was before. So before he was circumcised, before he followed any law, before he followed any of this, it was by faith. It was by promise that he was considered righteous before God. In God's ledger, in God's book, he credited Abraham as righteous. It, it was imputed to him in God's book because of, not because of he was circumcised or following any law. The Jewish people thought, you know, maybe that he um, had followed um, laws before Moses gave it to him or that he was, you know, righteous in a sense. But no, he's saying it was before um, any circumcision or any seal or sign outwardly of this promise and he's saying that um not only is he the father of the jewish people by descent but this key part here makes him the father of gentiles and all others by promise by faith so jews want to claim father abraham by saying no it wasn't just because he had the circumcision and you came from the lineage but it was he was credited righteousness before he had the sign before he had the circumcision because that made him the father of all who believe by faith and so this circumcision was kind of like an outward sign it was like a seal you know kind of sealed the deal it kind of was like this outward sign of this promise that he had but he's saying he was credited in god's ledger already with his righteousness imputed to him before he got that sign and that made him the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised and all who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father abraham walked in 
uh, to make him the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And so it was kind of like, you know, God had this plan from way back then, you know, that this would be um, by promise, by, by faith. And Abraham showed that. And so um, we see that even with our wheat and our weeds, you know, like, it's by promise. And God doesn't want anyone to perish, you know. He wants all to be saved. And he wants all to take hold of this promise. And he wants all to believe by faith. And, you know, it's not a matter of uprooting the weeds and, like, let's, you know, get rid of those that don't have this maybe out external external sign or this circumcision or you know this law but no he's saying this is for the promise and you don't know you know who's going to come to faith and when so don't don't uproot the weeds quite yet because you know in peter's epistle he tells us too that you know don't overlook this fact that the Lord, the Lord's timing is different than ours. You know, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So we don't know God's timing. It's not like the timing of man. You know, God looks down and sees it all. You know, at once, and His day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day for Him. So don't. You know, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some count of slowness, he, he might not, you know, if he seems to be working on your time, he might not be as fast as you'd like, but he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all of you to be saved and all to um, put their faith in him, but that all should reach repentance, and that, you know, repentance goes along with faith. It says, like, the other side of the coin, right? You have faith and repentance, and to put your faith in Christ means you repent of your formal, former deeds and former, you know, sin and way of life. And so, he wants all to have this repentance, and he wants the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He's saying, you know, that the Jewish people, um, according to the parable, you know, like they thought Jesus was going to come when he walked the earth, you know, this Messiah that was promised. He was not only going to, like, set up this earthly kingdom, this earthly um, reign, and overthrow the Romans and free them from the Roman oppression that they had, but they also thought that he was going to eradicate all evil and eradicate all bad, you know, that he was this righteous king that was going to reign, it was going to be, like, you know, heaven here on earth, and, you know, maybe there's, like, no sin and no evil anymore. So they kind of have this view of this Messiah coming to not only overthrow the, the Romans and set up his kingdom here now, but to also get rid of all evil. And so they couldn't maybe understand why um, this didn't happen, or, like, why, why you know, would he want the wheat to grow with, with the darnell you know and why would he not want that to be overthrown and he tells us like he's not slow to fill his pride he wants all to come to repentance he wants all to be saved but he's like don't worry because the day of the lord there's gonna be a day on god's timeline there's gonna be a day on god's timetable when he returns and that day is gonna come like a thief in the night you're not gonna know when it is it's on god's time only he knows we don't know when it is but he's gonna come back and it's gonna be like a thief it's gonna catch off guard it's gonna be like 
know it's time now they're eating and drinking and marrying, giving a marriage and caring about daily activities and daily lives and the joys and birth of of, de- of life and death and and just you know living and all of a sudden you know the flood came and they weren't expecting it. Well, see what the Lord's returning. It's like it's gonna come like a thief in the night. It's gonna catch you off guard, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's like, God's very patient. His timing's different. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he's going to come back and he's going to eradicate evil then. And he will, you know, expose the works done on earth. And, and you'll have to get an account, you know, for whether you repented or not and the works that you've done. And so he, he's like, that's not now when the Messiah is here now, but the day that he does return, he's going to come unexpectedly. And, you know, he will judge sin and he will judge evil. And the works that were done will be exposed. And so he kind of um, cautions them to, you know, don't, 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 count, don't count him as slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. But you got to remember, his timetable is different than ours. But he will judge evil. And he will hold, um, you know, sin accountable for all those that don't repent. And, and even your your works will be um, rewarded if, if, you know, they make it through the fire. <laughs> um, again, he tells us uh, when John the Baptist was baptizing uh, and making the way ready for Jesus, says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He's like, this is a, um, like a outward show uh, of of um, repentance, this baptizing I'm doing by water, but he's saying, "He who's coming after me is mightier than I." Jesus, you know, John Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus. He's like, "He who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry." Remember, this was like a, you know, such a humble statement from John the Baptizer because to carry a sandals to wash feet, remember, was below even a genteel slave duty and so he's like i'm not even worthy to carry his sandals that's how high this man is he's mightier than than i i can't even carry his sandals he's like he'll baptize you with the holy spirit and fire remember fire we talked about before it's kind of like this um judgment in the bible god's judgment that comes on and he's like i baptize you with water you know it's outward sign of repentance but the one who's coming after me he will baptize you with the holy spirit it'll be like your heart will be changed and your inward being will be changed. And remember um, the promise in Ezekiel 36 where he tells us, like, I'll give you a new heart. I'll remove that heart of uh, stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then you'll follow my ways and you'll follow my laws. And, and then you won't, you know, rebel anymore. And and then you will, you know, keep my commands and no one will need to teach you, you know. So he's like, he's going to give you a baptizing by the Holy Spirit. This is going to change you inwardly. This is going to change your heart. It's going to change your desires. It's going to change your being. You're going to be a new creation with this baptism. I'm just baptizing you with water here as an outward sign. But, but when Jesus comes, he can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that will give you a whole new um, heart, in a sense, and a whole new, um, you know, uh, desire to, to be able to follow him and want to. And fire, you know, and, and judgment. He will judge uh, sin and evil. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gather his wheat into his barn. With the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
And um, again, this um, picture of lifting the winnowing fork and having this chaff fly in the air and that will burn up, you know, it burns fast and it'll burn up quickly and just this unquenchable fire of um, judgment, you know, that he's going to come too and he will judge sin and judge evil as well. And so, you know, there's this call to repentance and have this inward heart change and, you know, as well as judgment will be, will come for those that don't. And so, um, not only that, but you, at the end, when Jesus does get baptized himself, he says, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And God tells him, God spoke, you know, what, a couple times to Jesus, and this is one of one of the couple, one of the few times that he does, and he tells him, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And so that just kind of confirmed his messiahship and confirmed um, his ministry that was starting now and just confirmed um, God's um, solidifying of that. And so the picture here we have is just of one of um, God desiring all people to be saved and all people um, also will be judged um for, for sin and evil and, you know, for even uh, the good works that you do, you know, there will be a reward. Um, I think there's another verse that I want to, oh, Revelation 22, 12 um, tells us that, you know, he's bringing his recompense with him. And get the right verse here. He says, Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the, Mom- the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to eat in the they may have the right to the tree of life and go through the gates into the city and so we just um see that jesus is saying like uh behold you know take heed look i'm coming and i'm gonna bring my my reward with me and i'll give it to each person um according to what they have done and you know, while there might not be any condemnation in Christ, we know that He, he will reward us um, based on the things that we've done and the works that we've done. And so, you know, to um, be watchful of that, be mindful of that, to um, live accordingly and to live, you know, like He could come back any day and and um, do that. And what a, um, a way to live, you know, and to know that he's the beginning and the end of all things it's a uh, timing of god and waiting you know to before we judge or before we uproot uh the wheat and and from the weeds and before we remove any of these you know god um ultimately is the the best judge and knows the heart of all and knows the intent of the heart which no man can do and so um, i think that's very um important as well but he also calls us, you know, as, as we try to live out these, um, this holy calling and this Christian life, you know, and, 
and to um, examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And this was um, kind of coming off the heels for, um, before that, they were trying to figure out if Paul, you know, he was the father to these uh, Corinthians believers and they're trying to figure out now like uh by what authority does he do this or you know by what um means is he uh speaking to us and telling us these things he says um i won't spare those who sinned earlier or any others since you're demanding proof that christ is beginning through me uh he's not weak in dealing with you but he's powerful among you for to be sure he was crucified in weakness Yet he lives by the power of God. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So they were wondering, like, by what authority is Paul doing or telling them, you know, to um, put off some sins and, and to, um, you know, uh, put away some of their um, ungodliness. And he's like, uh, you know by what authority I'm doing this? Christ has power working through me and he's powerful in dealing with you among you and dealing um, among you and he you know he was crucified in weakness yet he was raised in power um, likewise we are weak in him yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealings with you and he's like for you to not even acknowledge that is already you know a sin that should be punishable you should know by now that God's power is working through me and my authoritative uh, dealings with you in this church and he said like you should recognize that that's grounds for you know uh, like church discipline right there to not even recognize this power that that Paul was um, putting over them and so um he calls them further you know like examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith this is your duty as a christian test yourself not not your neighbor not not people in the world not you know the weeds out there he says test yourself constantly it's your duty as a christian test yourself in your own spiritual walk your own spiritual uh journey your own your own heart it's deceitful right test yourself do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, and not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. So he's telling them, you know, and watching them to... Uh, test your own heart. Test your own Christianity. Test your own walk. That's your your duty as a Christian to do. And he says, you know, examine um, yourself constantly in your spiritual state. And um, you should examine whether you're in the faith. And um, don't be deceived because your heart can be very deceitful. And you should prove your own self. Prove it to yourself and put the question upon you that, you know, even though others might not, you know, judge rightly, you should know and know for yourself whether Christ is in you. And even though it might look like different to someone else, you should know. And um, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but 
so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. So he kind of calls them to um, constantly be searching your own heart and to um, be, you know, doing a spiritual check on yourself um, in your own spiritual journey. That's kind of um, your duty as a Christian, and, and they should have realized the power of Christ that was working in Paul in his letters and in his um, censor, censorships and church disciplines and things that he was um, laying on them in those areas. Um, I said I'm a lot done. Once again, going back to those false teachers and why we should um, make sure not only are we walking right, but he tells you like they're you know, in this um, church that was just, you know, in this infant state and just, you know, early beginnings, you know, there was already evil, preferred men lurking around and already rising up to um, sway, you know, people um, falsely with false teachings. And we touched on that before, how they sneak into households and um, kind of uh, unnoticed and they kind of... um, pervert the grace of God into sensuality, denying their master and the um, prey on legalistic um, views and things like that. Well, now he tells them again that, um, you know, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew that Jesus, who saved the people of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. So he calls them to remember, like, hey, look at, look at the past, you know, Jesus didn't spare others who went astray, he didn't spare others that um, failed this test, you know, he's like, remember, he saved people out of Egypt, and then afterwards, he destroyed them that didn't believe. Angels who didn't stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal chain under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He's like, I didn't even spare angels when they left their proper authority. And they're in their dwelling. And then he also said, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He's like, he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the wrath that fell in that city? He's like, that serves as an example of, you know, God's just punishments and, and just uh, judgments on sin. And he's like, he didn't even spare them. So remember that, you know, um, God's judgment is, is real. And um, he does come to um, make sure that you are uh, repentant and living accordingly. And not, you know, having some kind of... Um, apostasy or, you know, like these false teachers that may, maybe, um, had, uh, legalistic things or perverted, uh, sensual, um, evil perversiveness, um, sprung into their, their teachings and into their church. And he kind of, um, uh, warns them, you know, to make sure that you, um, are examining yourself and, and, and following, um, the way, you know, because he didn't spare judgment in the past and he won't anymore. And that's just kind of, um, um, you know, 
the privilege and and the blessings that come with living a right life and with living according to godly standards well going to off the heels of that you know with um Saddam and Gomorrah and uh, the Israelites and they're grumbling in the wilderness how you know God didn't spare them well we go back to Deuteronomy 8 17 tells us uh, beware this is when they're going into the, the promised land right and God tells them like hey you know you're going to be going over here and um you know, remember, um, I I brought you out of this land of of Egypt. You know, don't remember the Lord your God. Don't forget who got you here and what I've done for you. And so he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes with it, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna and your fathers that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and my hand, might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after the gods and serve them, and worship them, I'll solemnly warn you today that you shall per- you shall surely perish. Like the nation that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So we see how God warns them, you know, like, hey, when you go into this land, like, remember, don't don't think that your own hand did it, or like, the might of your own hand got you all this wealth and all these um, uh, livestock and, and, and the, um, your silver and your gold and uh, your your living conditions all multiplied and um, you know you're doing well but remember like uh, don't think it's by your power by your might that you got these remember the Lord your God is he who gives you the power to get wealth is he that confirmed his covenant to you and swore to your father it's like don't forget and start serving other gods or you know worshiping them because just like the nation that you know he was driving out there you know all perish he's like uh you'll be driven out of this land too it's like don't forget who got you here and and i was the one that multiplied your livestock like i drove all the nations before you to to have this land and if you disobey my voice and you don't um keep to my commandments uh i'll drive you out as well you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so we just kind of see these these warnings of God's um, hearkening, you know, um, of not um, turning, you know, against him or, you know, um, forgetting him. 
not uh, acknowledging him as God. to worship other gods and, and forgetting that it was he that gave you the ability to get all these things and once again you know um, to go along with that in, in Judges he says you know he raised up judge every out the land you know like had judges that kind of like mediate some of the things that arise and God would raise up judges and and then um, the people would you know, the people go astray, and the guy would raise up a judge, and they come back, and then they go astray again. And so, he said, "Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways." So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord of their fathers, their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so to tie that back to kind of our main parable, you know, like the weeds and the wheat growing together, and like God, God told us, no, 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 don't don't tear them up because you might damage the wheat with it, you know. And we see that here again with the driving out of the nations of how he didn't drive out all the nations that Joshua left. He's like, I did that because I'm going to test you to see how, how you treat them. What's your heart going to be like? Are you going to follow my commands? I'm going to keep, I'm going to try these nations out because you, you didn't obey me to be with them. I'm actually going to keep these nations here and I'm going to touch your heart in it, oh Israel, and see how, how are you going to treat these nations that I leave? And so we can kind of see that here too with the ways of the world and, and you know, Christians now in the New Testament and um, other you know, people in the world, how, how do we treat them? What's our heart like to them? You know, God's not going to drive them out necessarily, you know, because he wants to see how to treat other people. What's our heart like to them? How are we um, keeping his commands and, and upholding his word and um, treating other people like that? Um, we can kind of see that as well in um, the account with uh, Joseph and, and Pharaoh and interpreting the dream, you know, when when the famine is going to occur and how Joseph kind of like saves this land from uh, the famine and we see that um, well, I'll read the passage too, it says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit um Joseph said, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. 
Seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly, thin, such as I had never seen all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke, and I also saw my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. The seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine. They will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will surely bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish though the, through the famine. And so even with our wheat and weeds parable, we say God leaves a remnant. Just as he left, told um, Pharaoh and Joseph had to interpret to Pharaoh what God was telling him to do. But, you know, it's like a, a point, you know, some wise men, a wise man over this, a discerning man, and have a um, store up, you know, the time of plenty where there's an abundance and a uh, time of a... Uh, plentiful take one fit take a little bit take a little portion of that plenty right and keep it back and, and store it you know store it up for the time of famine that's coming and that way when there's a famine you know you'll have a reserve you have a remnant and that remnant and that reserve um will help you in that time of famine and that way the land won't perish and it won't perish through the famine it'll stay, stay alive you know it will have this uh Reserve to keep it alive, and we see that God always saves a remnant, you know, with, with His um, when those that know the one true God, right? And um, throughout uh, the history of the Bible, uh, Noah, you know, was the man that God um, uh, preserved through the flood, and then you know, how He um, kind of um, established a remnant even after that, uh, always, you know, well. You know, throughout all times of history, and even with Christianity, you know, God saves a remnant of of His Christians, and so even when you know it might seem like uh, there's a severe famine in the land, and 
in a severe um, uh, famine of uh, spiritual uh, knowledge or hey, remember Elisha? You know, hey, no, 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 you're not the only one left. You know, there's still a remnant that didn't, you know, gonna need to pass. Like, there's gonna be always a remnant that I save so that the land won't perish. And that kind of um, even goes back to our, our dream of Pharaohs, you know, with the time of plenty and the time of famine with the grain and how he, he instructed um, Joseph to tell Pharaoh how to handle that and how, like, hey, if you take a little portion out during the time of plenty and keep a little bit back, you know, establish a point, you know, wise men over overseers, you know, to take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and then gather that in, in the good years, gather it for the coming, store it up under the authority of Pharaoh and the food of the cities and let them keep it and that way, you know, that reserve of land will will, will sustain you, sustain the, the land, you know, through the seven years of famine. And so that's another reason why God, you know, wouldn't allow the servant to, um, or why the master wouldn't allow, allow the servant to, you know, start taking all the wheat with the weeds because it's like, no, we, we need a remnant here. And we still, you know, have this, um, Even if, you know, there's an abundance, he's like, let them grow together and let, you know, hopefully the, the aroma of courage, you know, the, the salt and light of um, Christianity, hopefully, you know, um, still go forth and, and make disciples of, of all nations, right? And so, uh, Paul's teaching can be, you know, intermingled. Discreetly and so um, oh, nonchalantly sometimes, or even if you know, um, well, the report to the guard after the resurrection when Jesus, you know, was put in the tomb and they sealed that tomb shut. You know, they're all supposed to take watch and make sure this, you know, man didn't escape. And, and um, you could tell the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders were a little distressed over uh, what had happened, and they didn't know what to do because the report. Went out to the guard. These guys were witnesses, right? They were witnesses that reported to the guard that what, what had happened. And um, it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So these guys seen it with their own eyes. They're eyewitnesses, right? And they told the chief police, priests all that taken place had taken place. That, you know, he resurrected. His body wasn't there. Mary and these women came to the tomb. They they didn't find his body there. With the elders and taking counsel, they gave a great sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, uh, we'll satisfy him and keep him out of trouble. Keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And that story has been spread among the Jews to this day, it says in Matthew's account. So we see that, you know, there are true witnesses that were like, uh, we gotta report this to the chief priest. Uh, his body's not here. Uh, there's a bigger twig. Uh, he resurrected. And then we see false witnesses who were bribed off with a great, uh, sufficient sum of money, it tells us. And he's like, uh, they took counsel, the elders did. These are, you know, religious, spiritual leaders, right? 
and how we can see there's the false teaching even in their bribery their false witnesses if a false witness you know back in the law was uh punishable by death <laughs> like you know if you built for false witness that was a huge crime that what you meant to do to that person should be done to you so it was, there was severe punishment for being for bearing false witness don't you know bear false witness against your neighbor that was what do the commandments tell you do not murder you know do not steal uh, don't commit adultery don't bear false witness this was a huge uh, commandment to bear false witness and what you meant to that person that you bore false witness against that shall be done to you and it was usually punishable by death in the law so it was a huge commandment you know that they should have known to follow and um it seems like it was just like a flagrant uh sin that the chief priests and these elders committed and they're like you know uh here's some money if this comes to the governor's ear, uh, ear we'll uh, we'll satisfy him keep you out of trouble we'll just tell him like the disciples came by night and stole him away while they were sleeping and you know obviously that wouldn't make sense because how would they know if they were asleep the disciples came and stole the body they're sleeping. They know the disciples came and stole his body. So obviously we see some flaws and fallacies and, you know, um, many false witnesses rose up against Jesus when they were trying to um, condemn him and none of their testimony agreed, right? So that even false witnesses were coming forward to say, like, well, this man said he was going to destroy the temple and raise it or destroy the temple and rebuild three days and seven, like, none of, with his hands and none of their testimonies would line up really factually like um once with his hand and one didn't you know like there is you know um fallacies and even like discrepancies in, in between testimonies that they couldn't condemn jesus with because they knew they're false and so we, the story they fabricated has some flaws in it because they couldn't even know who stole the body if they were sleeping right but they're like we'll satisfy him we'll keep you out of trouble if it comes to the government's ears don't worry and they took the money and they did as they were directed and that story was spread among the Jews, even to this day, it says. So we just see how, like, falsehood, false teaching, false um, witnessing, false um, doctrines, all these things um, can sneak into Christianity, sneak into um, the church, sneak into our lives without us even knowing our really uh, regarding it the way we should and I think that's a great heat and a great warning like Jesus like look I'm coming I'm bringing my recompense with me you know and so I will judge you know sin and evil and take heed because this is sly it's sneaky sometimes we think we're doing a good thing or sometimes we think like you all in trouble or something like that that and it's just like you know he cautions us against um all false teaching all false witnessing all falsehood especially within christianity and especially within um you know religious context like like these chief priests and these elders were in and with regard to the resurrection the you know the euangelion the this good news and so it's kind of like a big um a big flagrant sin you know to sneak these uh false teachings and teachers and witnesses and things like that into christianity or the church 
church, not in a corporate sense, but you know, the church. I think our second question. Why can it be difficult for us to distinguish between believers and unbelievers? And I think um, that is a, a good reason why you know, it can be very discreet and very um, secretive and very um, cunning and sly. Um, and also another reason why he didn't want to uproot the or take out the the weed with the weeds is because he to make disciples of all nations, teach them to follow his commandments, but bring to the uh, obedience of truth, right? But uh, we see how even in history, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews, popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Um, and that kind of uh, ends the book of, of Esther, and we just see like how that was a very unique time in history that was um, probably not ever recreated where pagan, I want to say pagan, like for those that aren't familiar with the Christian context, but um, a Gentile, a non-Jewish king was reigning, right? And a Jew um, was second in command to him, and there was this time of peace in this Gentile nation. There was a time of peace and prosperity for um, this whole nation under this uh, king of Hajuaris and, and Mordecai the Jew being second in command to him and that was a time when you know Esther went to this, to this king and, and told him like hey you know uh, they're gonna annihilate me and all my people and he, he didn't know that she was a Jewish gal that he uh, was married to you know and she told him his ethnic, her ethnic identity and that how Haman was trying to um you know, annihilate all her people, and so, um, he, you know, issues this order, um, stopped it, and so we see, like, how, um, that was just a time of, um, great. So King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, in full account of his high honor, of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. I did not read in the books of Chron- the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews. So we just see like how um, this time period not only um, was a great movement in history from Jews and their um, Purim and their um, festivals that they practice celebrate still, but also like you know how this influenced even this Gentile nation and how it was just a time of. Um, great uh, peace that has never been and I guess we could really say not only you know in the account of Esther and Mordecai um, and King Ahasuerus but like um, it was a time of not only when they lived together in harmony but also like Jews had uh, recognized and they um, under you know a gentile king and um, their interests were, were sought and their um their they were promoted and they were um not you know something to be embarrassed over you know they weren't um you know remember Esther hit her ethnic identity so it was kind of like now they were um lived together in, in harmony in this unity and where they 
um, his advancement and their views and their um, uh, ways were um, promoted and advanced and nothing to be um, scorned or uh, kind of embarrassed of, you know, under to tell um, nations and kings. And so we kind of see that um, even today that in Christian Christianity, how sometimes it might be hard to promote Christian ideas or ideologies or even ashamed of um, maybe being associated or you might not be the cool thing to do, <laughs> you know, to um, be, be, you know, engulfed in this Christian bubble or whatnot, but, you know, how that kind of led to um, this peace and this harmony and this prosperity for um, them both. So that's another reason why, you know, God might um, not want to gather the weeds quite yet because what great influence um, like you know the Holy Spirit really the power of the Holy Spirit can have and um, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that you know this couldn't happen until um, after the, the resurrection right so for as one man came death by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. So God's timing rates is going back to what we were saying, how there will come a day for judgment, the Jews were expecting Messiah to come and eradicate people right here now and stuff his, his uh kingdom and his empire here on earth and overthrow the Romans, you know, and they're waiting for this promise that they thought was going to be like this way. And, um, how we learned too in that episode about, um, of Peter's, how God's timing is not like our time, right? A thousand years like a day, a day is like a thousand years. Well, this all, you know, kind of goes back to the resurrection and the order and the timing with that as well. Because he says, each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits, right? He had to rise from the dead first. He's the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so we see, like, okay, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. So we just see the order of how Christ has to be raised from the dead first, to be the first fruits. And then uh, it says, each in his own order. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, from those who, you know, profess. Christ, and then comes the end when he delivered the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. He must reign and put all his enemies under his feet. And so we just see that um, that couldn't really happen until Christ resurrected, right? He overcame death, he overcame sin, he overcame evil first by rising um, from the dead to show that he did that and so and then um next in that order then those who belong to christian christians and then you know comes the end so we see how are those who put their faith in christ um, 
know if you guys want the exact lingo here, but you know, um, we just see this order and the timing and the time of God and um, how all this came with the power of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, He's not weak among you, but powerful in dealing with you. He you know, was crucified in weakness, but raised in power. So we just see this weakness to power once again. And how um, we got glimpses, you know, in Mordecai's account and whatnot of, of this, this peace and prosperity, but ultimately, you know, pointing to this um, Holy Spirit power and the resurrection power of um, peace and um, prosperity and just um, how um, the order of, you know, Christ being first and then, you know, those um, who put their faith, faith in him and how that is to eventually spread and all who reach repentance. Repent, you know, he isn't slow and keep his promises. He wishes that none perish, right? So, all to reach repentance we also see these false teachers and these false um, prophets as the Old Testament used to call them arise and um, how they kind of uh, rely on their own word their own dreams their own hearts and not you know what God tells them or the message that God sent them and Ezekiel is a good example of that um, he tells them, like, he condemns these false prophets, and he says that, you know, I'm against you. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. So we see, like, um, God tells us to, to look, to, to, to watch, be, be on the lookout for, for Christ's return, looking like a thief in the night, to, um, to be watchful for, um, certain certain things in, in the faith, right? And he kind of um, like it's even our spiritual blindness or, you know, are um, able to see with um, that as well. And so um, there's a time where Paul had this spiritual, he was struck with spiritual blindness for three days on the road to Damascus, right? Until Ananias in a vision saw to um, go lay hands on him and help him to be able to have his sight restored and so many times there's this heedance to keep watch to look to be watchful and then also um vision and and, um the ability to to have these visions and then there's also this lack of seeing that you know this blindness spiritual blindness you know whether it's um temporary or whether it is false visions and, and false prophets and false teachers that arise. So then in Ezekiel we see how um, these false prophets were there and he said, what do these foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing? Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among runes. You did not go up to the gaps or restore the wall around the house of Israel so that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They see false visions. They speak lying divinations. They claim this is the Lord's declaration when the Lord did not send them. Yet they wait for the fulfillment of their own message. They didn't see 
Didn't you see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you proclaimed this is the Lord's declaration, even though I didn't speak? God condemns these uh, false prophets. Even in the Old Testament, that was a, a great sin. And he like, gives us warning, you know, on how we can tell a true prophet from a, a false prophet. But he also says that, like, um, this is like uh, a divination of your, your own heart. And he says, like, these are your own dreams you're relying on, your own words you're relying on, and your own um, idols, essentially, is what he's saying. He's like, you are false, you're false prophets and you're... Um, counterfeiting God's real prophets and you are, you know, thwarting God's ways. And he said that you, um, your, your motivation is your own greed, your own idols. And we see often in the New Testament how, um, idolatry and warning of idolatry is often associated with greed and the driving of, um, money and, and greed leads to idolatry. And that's what he tells us with these false prophets here like you're motivated by greed you're motivated by your idols you're motivated by your own self-interest and self-servings and your own um idols of your heart he says in 14:3, it says son of man these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put sinful stumbling blocks before their faces should i be consulted by them at all Therefore, speak to them. This is what the Lord God says. When anyone from the house of Israel sets up an idol in his heart, puts a simple stumbling block before his face, and then comes to the prophet, I, Yahweh, will answer him appropriately. I'll answer him according to his many idols, so that they may take hold of the house of Israel by their hearts. They are all estranged from me because of their idols. And so he's like, uh, your own, you know, heart's interest and your own um, heart's idols are leading you astray and um, that word for idol there that he uses is gilim and it's kind of like this um, dung pellet kind of patient that that he was referred to that's how he kind of like refers to their idols and he's like it's just your own idols of your heart your own dung pile your own um, Gileam of your heart and he's like um, your idolatry is uh, an affront to me and it's really your own greedy um, heart motives that are causing you to have these false visions and false divinations and it was really um, the sin of their their heart that um, was revealed and so um, oftentimes we see this um, contrast and this uh, comparison between these uh, false visions and these um, look, see, take heed, warnings to be watchful in God's kingdom to, to um, have eyes that see and to like have the spiritual blindness removed and um, as well as these temporary um, blindness that fall on some of the people um, even in the New Testament like said, like Saul and then again there was Elimaeus the magician who was amazed by some of the works that Paul was doing and uh, he tried to thwart the way of God and the way of righteousness and and what what Paul was doing and God's great work in that and um let me pull up the scripture here 13 8 but Elimaeus the magician for that was the meaning of his name opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when they saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so it was like, you know, this man was trying to um, lead people astray, and he was, you know, thought he was someone great because a lot of people followed him for a long time. But then when he seen the miracles done by Paul, even he uh, was astonished and started believing. And, you know, he tried to. Um, try to uh discredit those and um lead the proconsul astray with um with his own works and, and imposing them opposing them and um discrediting them many times in the bible when you accredit the work of god to the devil you know that's blasphemy that's what blasphemy is, and that's kind of like the big affront, you know, is disregarding God's work, and that's what, you know, many people were accusing Jesus of, you know, and they were like, he's blasphemy, trying to accredit the things that God was doing through Jesus as, as the work of the devil, and that's like, you know, the ultimate, um, you know, the, well, the ultimate sin is obviously unbelief, unbelief, but to take that, you know, deeper is, you know, crediting it to the works of Satan and not, not of God. And Jude, once again, we keep going back to, you know, this Jude passage and it's just telling us about these false teachers and beware. So then, yet in like manner, these false teachers, you know, these people, they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh and they reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And again, he tells us, you know, like, they rely on, you know, the, their own um, dreams that, you know, God won't punish them or won't, you know, hold them accountable for the, for the false teaching and, and that they um, defile the body and reject uh, legitimate authority and revile and mock angelic majesty. And um, kind of goes on to tell, like, prophecy their own heart again you see you know like these fake te- these false teachers have this teaching of, of heart own passions own you know um desires and everything in between and he tells us that they're not um god's word it's not from god it's not um the holy spirit is in their own ways you know one of the marks of a, of a of a christian that he tells us in revelation 13 he says said that um there's gonna be a time where if anyone has an ear let him hear because if anyone is destined for captivity he'll go into captivity if if anyone kills with a sword he must be killed with a sword here calls for the patient endurance and faithfulness of the saints which is seen this is um our response to difficult times and to trials and to persecution um and that's what a Christian's response is, is patient endurance and faithfulness. That's what our proper response is during difficult times. Endurance and, and faithfulness and just you know, long suffering. And he says that many people will um, give in and won't um, have that 
patient endurance and faithfulness during times of suffering. Um, first John 4, you know, he goes on and tells that, John tells us that, you know, no one has seen God, right? We haven't seen God, we can't see God and live, right? But we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Um, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. This is the verse I was looking for. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us the Holy Spirit, right? And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So this is, even though we haven't seen God, this is how we know. He says, um, in this, you know, incredible way, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another with, you know, an unselfish kind of love, not a self-serving um, kind of love, um, God abides in us, and his love um, abides in us, and is completed and perfect. Um, we know we have this confident assurance, right, that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his Holy Spirit. Uh, and then he says that we have seen and testified. So those who are with him in person that, that seen Jesus um, during his ministry, seen him during the resurrection, they testified. They have seen and testified. They're eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony and accounts of what they've seen. And they testified based on what they've seen, eyewitness. Um, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so, it's not, you know, we don't see God, but they have seen Christ the Son, and they testified to the things that they have seen. And so that um, confirms it all the more. These eyewitness, what we have seen, right? We testify to the things we have seen. Not only opposition and he became the source of eternal life um, to all who obey him and being um, designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so remember Melchizedek was that mysterious um, man that appeared um, that Abraham gave tithes to and he was like a high priest and a king at the time. And so it's just he's in the same order of Melchizedek and um that he has, you know, which is that patient endurance. Well, just kind of going along with the theme of this 
seen and watchfulness and look looking and while that goes along with many areas um in the faith you know to be watchful for for many things and especially you know the coming of the lord it is going to be going up deep and i had to be prepared and to um you know have our spiritual eyes open and to um vision you know and uh, witness accounts and testimony and having um visions from God versus visions of your own heart and um, false prophets and false teachings um, and how they kind of all come along with uh, acts of power that, that God has done in the witness um, born out of that and um, again we see how later Jesus rebuked um, his disciples as they were reclining at the table because they didn't believe um, those who said that they seen him. He called them to account for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And so he rebuked these disciples at the table. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed in me and has been baptized will be saved. But he who has not believed will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it'll not hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll get well. So then, uh, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, set down the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord was working with them and confirming the word by signs that followed. This is especially important when this new church was being birthed based off of, you know, what they've seen at the resurrection and, you know, the gospel and this good news message. And so many signs were following um, the disciples as they went out and um, preached the good news and it kind of confirmed um, the word with these signs. Oh, and, and Jesus even rebuked his own disciples for not believing the, the testimony of these um, women, of what they said they've seen and testified to about the resurrection. And so it's just how um, God, um, how, you know, seriously takes these, um, this unbelief and this um, blindness in a sense to not um, believing um, his words and the testimony of those that, that have um, seen it. And um, it's confirming uh, the word with that and with the Holy Spirit and with eyewitness testimony of, of what they've believed. At one point, you know, Jesus told them, like, even if all the books in the world contained all the miracles that Jesus did, you know, there wouldn't be enough books to contain them all because he's done so many miracles that we haven't even listed in the Bible, you know, it's like if everything he did was written, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. That's how many, you know, signs and, and, and wonders he's done and how many miracles he's done and how much, you know, he confirmed the message. We didn't have enough books to contain everything. If they were all even written. So this is just a portion of what he's done, right? And even in Revelation 1, he, he says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and ever living one. I died but see, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hate, absolute control and victory over the dead, right? And so write the things which you have seen in this vision. Tell John this. 
and that's where we get revelation, right? That's the name. Is he pulled back this curtain of the things that were revealed to him. Write the things which you have seen in the vision, and the things which are now happening, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the divine messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we just see over and over again, especially in Revelation, you know, like this vision came to John on, on the island of Patmos when he was there being persecuted on the kind of the word. And Christ, you know, appears to me and says, write on a scroll what you see in this revelation. Send it to the seven churches. And again, he says, write what you see um, in a book. And he's like, um, write the things which you have seen. Uh, the things that are and the things that will take place after this. And so he tells them, you know, to, to write down these visions as if, you know, an eyewitness account of these um, revelations that I'm giving you and um, of this revelation that I'm giving you. So, like, he wrote what we have right now as the book of Revelation of these visions that he had seen and Christ told him to, to write them down as like an eyewitness account of them. And so we um, compare that once again with the false versions and false teaching and prophecies and um, false prophets had in the past. And, um, you know, with the true word of God and the true eyewitness accounts of uh, signs and wonders and vision and, and the things they've seen, you know, that makes up all history, you know. And that's to history and things that happened in the past is their eyewitness accounts of people who have seen these things and are bearing witness to it. They wrote them down and they documented them. They noted them, right? And Christ told them, write it down. Document this. Send it to seven churches. Make sure you bear witness to the things that you have seen. This is your eyewitness testimony, your eyewitness account. Document this. Send it. Make sure that this testimony stands and bears witness. This isn't, you know, a dream. This isn't like some fleshly thing you're relying on. Have this dream or prophecy of your own heart or your own selfish desires or your own, you know, greed-driven ambition or I want to be, you know, a, a fairy princess when I grow up or I want to be, you know, a famous athlete when I grow up. He's like, no, this is a vision that you've seen as the eyewitness testimony to my signs and wonders that confirm my message. Write this down. Document it. Not not just the things you see now, but things that I show you to come as well. And so we just see throughout history how um, the credibility of um, eyewitness accounts of the work of God and his movement and his um, the resurrection, his miracles, his wonders that we still read about even today and, and we don't have enough books to contain all of them. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, how do we know anything in history happened, right? Well, we have eyewitness accounts that were there and wrote it down and documented these things and we still read them today. Now, how do we know history? How do we know World War One happened? Well, how do we know? 
know, we have people that were there, eyewitnesses, right, that, you know, documented this. And Jesus kind of gives this parable um, in Matthew 20. He tells them, like, you know, the laborers in the vineyard, and he, he, he has these, these people were standing there to get hired. They wanted some work, right? They were um, going about the third hour. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace, right? It's the third hour of the day. They were standing there idle. They had got hired. They wanted some work. He said, you, go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I'll give you. So he hired them, right? And said, I'll pay you your wages. And they went, going out again about the sixth hour. And the ninth hour, he did the same. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, go into the vineyard. This is the eleventh hour now, right? He does all these, all, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, right? Now we come to the eleventh hour. There's still people standing um, in the marketplace idle, wanting to be hired for work. So he comes to the, at the eleventh hour. And he tells the people, you too, you know, I'll hire you. Because no one's tired of Okay, go. You two go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages. Start with the very first one that was hired and pay them their wages all the way up to the 11th hour guy that got hired. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So everyone got a denarius. The 11th hour guy got a Daenerys. The second hour guy got a Daenerys. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? He's like, when I hired you, did you not agree to work for me for one Daenerys? How did I do you wrong? You agreed to it when I hired you. Even though you worked all these hours and you had the heat of the day on your on your back, yeah, but that's what you agreed to, friend. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He's like, this is my money. I agreed to pay this man the same amount I paid with you. Do I, do I not have a right to, to use my money on how I want to pay out my workers? He's like, do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Because, like, that's how it is in my kingdom, too. Even though, you know, you had this, you know, promise, and you had this Messiah coming, and you had the scriptures, and you had the temple teaching, and you had the worship, and you had the prophecy, and you had these things. Is it not mine to give freely to whom I will? Can I not give it also to the Gentiles? So you had this first, but uh, to all who did receive, right? You didn't receive me when I came. And now that I brought Gentiles into the kingdom, is it not my prerogative to bring who I want? Is it not mine to give out? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. He's saying, you had this first, now you are last. The last to receive it have become first now. He's like, it's my prerogative to give to, to whom I, I choose. Do you begrudge my generosity? And so it's kind of, you know, how God's kingdom is, you know? It's his prerogative, and he's saying, like, you had it first, maybe this was, um, you know, 
York is but you, you know, is it not mine to hire this last man as well? And he gave him the same, same, same pay, same rights, same standing, same privileges. comes from, you know, they've seen a lot of miracles and a lot of um, wonders and signs, you know, and healings and casting out demons. And it says that they were astonished at the majesty of God when he healed a boy and gave him back to his father after rebuking um, an unclean spirit to come out of him. So there's this majesty of God that they're marveling at when they've seen these signs that Jesus was doing. And, um, Jesus tell them, uh, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what he was saying. It was concealed from them. So that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And then an argument arose over who was the greatest. <laughs> It's just amazing how God can, like, you know, conceal some things and, and give people an understanding, you know, but... And ultimately, like, okay, if you don't have eyes to see, you know, if it's not your, your, your eyesight that's a problem, how about your ears? If you have ears, let them hear. <laughs> like, okay, maybe it's not your eyes. Well, let's see your ears, you know. We always hear this warning throughout the Bible, you know, Old Testament, and you're like, uh, not just eyes to see, but ears to hear. They're a rebellious house, you know. Okay, okay, Jesus says, uh, let's just sing, sing it to your ears. Right? <laughs> and just to tie all this back again to our um, study question about the wheat and the tares and the false teaching and the true disciples. Um, and to tie back again to um, promises in the Old Testament and Ezekiel. In Ezekiel to Jerusalem. God told him, like, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls, at the doors of your house, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do. They sit before you and they hear your words, but they don't take them to heart. They don't put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Remember, that goes back to our um, gala and our idols and their heart and their greed and their idolatry and like, you know, they hear God's word, but they don't put them into practice. They don't take them to heart. They must speak love, but their grief are just gain. Indeed, to them, you're nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they don't put them into practice. When all this comes true, and surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So God's like, you know, we see the contrast between our poet and our Habakkuk, you know, praise God for this, you know, suffering that I've gone through and the famine and the, you know, just losing all things, right? And now he's singing this beautiful poem, this beautiful song, like, to the choir master, I'll rejoice and get my salvation. Well, even here we see like, okay, these people think you're singing like a love song. It's like a beautiful voice to them that plays the instrument. Well, the thing is just like like a like a song. Like, oh, they hear my words and it's like l- lulling them, and it's you know soothing to their ears. But they don't really practice them. They don't take it to heart. They don't think any of it's going to come true. But they'll know when it does come true that 
uh, a prophet has been among them and that I sent you to them and that these are my words. And so the contrast, once again, to the true teaching and real teaching of God and his words and um, dreams of one, one's own heart and, you know, fake um, teaching, false teaching, false disciples and just people's own um, dreams, fantasies, songs, poems, whatnot, you know, the wisdom of the world, if you would, in comparison to God's. And just to beware of that, to take heed once again. Noah, remember, was a man whom God chose at the time when God's heart was grieved. He's like, I regret I made mankind. He's like, their thoughts, their intentions are all evil all the time. He's like, you know, it grieved his heart that the wickedness of man um, that was happening, that was going on in their hearts and their minds. And so Noah was the only one whom God found favor with, right? He found favor in God's eyes, it says. And nonetheless, God gave him um, favor in his eyes. And he was, you know, the one God chose to save through this flood and destruction of the whole earth and to start a new lineage from. And so um, from that, we are told that, you know, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, uh, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so Noah, he never even seen rain, some scholars believe at this point, you know. And so God's like, hey, we're going to flood the whole earth and build this ark and your whole household, your wife, your sons and their wives will be saved. And he had to trust God by faith and build this ark. And people were probably, you know, teasing him, making fun of him, thought he was a crazy man building this huge ark boat in his yard, you know, with, with wood and all this stuff. And so by faith, in reverent fear of God, he constructed this ark and sure enough, um, the flood came and he gathered, you know, two by two of all animals, clean and unclean at this point, and put them into the ark. And um, God said it was, you know, but or the author of Hebrews, I should say, we don't know who the author is, but by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So God condemned the world, right? And Noah became an heir of the same righteousness that is by faith and his works went along with it to prove you know his faith in God and his faith in what God said and the reverent fear of God first John 5 is always um a text that comes up for me and says like if we accept the testimony of men you know in, in, in life and in courtrooms and in legal things and in, in history and in, in all areas you know we we accept the testimony of men um when they take sworn statements or you know with fallible human humans as evidence so a simple man fallen man fallible humans on in all their um errors and, and flaws right and we accept their testimony the testimony of God is greater. Um, how much more authoritative is God's testimony? And this is the testimony of God. He testified regarding his son. 
So it's like, if you believe man's, follow man and follow man's testimony, uh, and we accept that, how much more should you not accept the testimony of God over his son? He testified regarding his son. The one who believes in the son of God, that adheres to trust and relies confidently on him as savior, has that testimony within himself. He can speak authoritatively about Christ from his own personal experience. He has that uh, testimony within himself. This is his own um, authoritative uh, account of Christ from his own personal experience. The one who does not believe God in this way has made him to be a liar. You're making God out to be a liar if you don't. Because he has not believed in the evidence that God has given regarding his son. You dismissed and denied the evidence God gave regarding his son. And you, you know, hold man's testimony and man's fallible evidence higher than God's? He's like, uh, the testimony of God is far greater, uh, and the evidence he has is far more superior, far more authoritative. And you made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the evidence that God has given regarding his son. And the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has a son, by accepting Christ as a savior, has, a, has life, eternal life. And he who does not have a son, uh, does not have life. So if you don't have personal personal faith in Christ, you don't have eternal life. And this is, you know, what's written. He's like, okay, well, you, you know, believe man's testimony, man's um, evidence, and there's always, you know, probable ways with that. Like, how much more should you not believe God's testimony and God's evidence, especially with you know, sworn oaths and, and statements that men make, you know? You know, don't make God a liar. He's given us evidence. He's given us testimony. He's testimony to his son. And we have personal eyewitness account testimony based on our own experience with Christ. And that's, you know, usually what our, what testimony is in the Christian lingo, right? Like, what's your testimony? That's, what did Christ do for you before I was like this? And after I met Christ, he changed me and, and made me like this, right? And that's our testimony, this is my personal experience with, with Christ. This is how he changed me. This is what he's done for me. This is, you know, it's not a about you, uh, biography or autobiography as one pressure always said, you know, like your testimony is about what Christ has done for you and what Christ is um changed in you. In Jonah, when um Jonah was fleeing from God and trying to, you know, sail to Tarchish because he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach at these these people he was highly um, racist towards and didn't think they believed they should um, have salvation and didn't want God to save these people. He was fleeing from God. And he got in this boat with these sailors. I mean, these sailors were what we call pagan. Um, they, you know, maybe worship idol or didn't worship the one true God at the time, right? And so um, the boat was um, getting, you know, beat up by the water and the waves and was going to drown. And they told him, like, get up calling on your God maybe your God will give us a thought on uh, what we should do to not perish 
and um to Jonah they said that and another came and said like uh, let's cast thoughts so we can learn who's to blame for this disaster so they cast thoughts and Lot fell in Jonah so believe it or not God didn't even use this um casting of lots by these um pagan sailors right to do signs and wonders <laughs> and you know he said uh the lots uh, fell in Jonah, and they said to him, Now tell us, who is to blame for this disaster? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? So they said to them, I, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear and worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became ex- extremely frightened and said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was running from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you so that the sea will become calm for us? So the sea was becoming more and more violent. And Jonah said, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and then the sea will be calm for you. I know that this is because of me, and this great storm has come upon you. And so we just see, like, God used even, you know, these unbelievers and these pagan um, sailors at the time, and their casting of lots to show his will to his will and his um, guidance and, and to show like uh, the lot fell on Jonah, <laughs> the one who was to blame for this and why the sea was getting so mad and upset at them and going to drown them while they all were going to perish because of um, Jonah fleeing from the Lord and trying to run away from, from God's call. And he knew it and, and they were like, why have you done this? Like, why are you running away from the Lord? Are you kidding me? They had to tell him. And he's like, they're like, um, what should we do? Tell us what to do. And he told me, you know, throw, throw me into the sea. And, um, the sea would become more and more violent. Jonah said to him, pick me up, throw me into the sea. The sea will become calm for you. For I know that it is, it is because of me that the great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. Um, to return to land, but they could not because the sea became more violent um, against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, Please, oh Lord, do not let us perish because of taking this man's life, this innocent man, you know. Do not make us accountable for innocent blood. For you, oh Lord, have done as you please. And they, so they call on, you know, Yahweh there. They call on the winter God there. And they're, they're like, Please don't let us perish for this innocent man's blood. I picked him up and, and threw Jonah into the sea and the sea stopped raging and men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows so it's just a great account of like you know they believed what they saw and the science God did and they believed at that moment <laughs> he hasn't gotten to none of that yet and preached preach one sentence sermon yet <laughs> so it's just amazing how like God can work in 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 all these instances and whosoever heart whosoever's heart is just ready to um believe you know based on the testimony based on the facts based on the evidence based on the miracles based on the works that they see you know how um value is that <laughs> again scripture tells us that um joseph you know so when they were all in egypt the famine came you know and uh joseph was uh, took it under Pharaoh and um, told him what to do in time of the famine. And 
um, Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of money of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose our infants so that, they would not, so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in, the, in his father's house. So we just see like um, how the time of this promise was coming near that God promised Abraham. You know, all this time they're in Egypt, and all these events happened, and the time was now drawing near for this promise to um, start taking place. And so the people all of a sudden started increasing, um, in Egypt, and then all of a sudden, you know, this um, captivity happened until God raised up Moses. And again, we just see the importance of this uh, testimony and um, writing down the things that you see and how that bears witness. And in Revelation 22, again, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descent of David, the bright morning star. And um, right before that, you know, the verse previous says, outside of the dogs, the false teachers, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Uh, they are outside the, the city gate. They don't get to enter. Um, and another time also, he tells us um, at the end of Luke, um, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me, this writing once again, everything that bears witness, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what's written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. On this writing and um, testimony go kind of hand in hand throughout the Bible and how he even, you know, passes it forward to the disciples saying, like, you are my witnesses now and you're going to go ahead and testify, testify to the nations beginning in Jerusalem of the things that you saw. And after Saul, you know, finally um, gets there and he has his eyes um, open. And I said, like, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And who, who's my brother? Who's my sister? Who's my, who's my mother? Those that do the will of God, right? And so now Paul is, um, is his brother. Again, he says, you know, 
it was by faith that Abraham was justified. Was it not, you know, our father Abraham who offered Isaac up by faith on the altar? And it was, you know, faith that was counted to him as righteousness. Even demons believe God is one and shudder. But it's the faith and works that go along with that, that count for God, you know, by faith in these works that Isaac, or that um, Abraham had done that proves um, his faith. So believing God is one, you know, even, even demons do that. But, you know, faith without works is dead, he says. And, you know, even through wisdom, God didn't make himself known through the wisdom of the world. He says, where's the debater of this age, you know? Didn't God make the wisdom of the world um, thwart the the discerning of the discern the discernment of the discerning the wisdom of the world is not the way god wanted you to know him he's like i'll make myself known through um the foolishness of what we preach you know the wisdom of god is higher than the wisdom of, of the world and you know the message of the cross sounds like foolishness to to the, the learned or to the one that relies on the wisdom of the world or you know back in that context it was the Greeks loved debate, and they had philosophy, and they had all kinds of wisdom, and, you know, the Jews were looking for signs and, and wonders, because, like, you know, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And that's why, you know, Jews demand signs, Greek seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly. It's silliness to Gentiles. It, it, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was something that they couldn't grasp the Messiah, you know, being crucified, the Messiah um, laying down his life and then rising back. You know, they didn't understand it quite yet. And so it was foolishness to Gentiles. It was you know, the stumbling block to, to the Jews and um, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And that is the method of the cross that is so hard for many to understand God's wisdom. It's not the world's wisdom. You wonder like, okay, what do we do in this situation? Or um, sometimes it's kind of like, well, it's cold out. I don't want to put that cart back in the cart place, you know, can I just leave it right here? Or, you know, sometimes I start with like little things that, you know, like, oh, do I have to wipe the treadmill down? I'm sure it'll be okay. Germs last for what, maybe like 20 seconds, you know, but it's kind of like, you know, if you don't do the next right thing or if you don't do what you know is right, you know, that for you is sin and so if you know something's right and you fail to do it that's sin so even you know um maybe my heart wasn't right in it too like maybe like that person didn't put his car back do I have to do mine or you know they don't wipe it down like why should I care you know like so you know but I know it's the right thing to do so to um take a step (laughs) in faith and, and do you know the next right thing that you know is right to do even with you know minor little things that are um um established in society you know as laws or you know whatnot but um i guess what i'm getting at is too you'll be delivered over by parents and brothers relatives and friends and some of them will even put you to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake and he says like unbelievers or maybe even um 
believers might uh hopefully not believers but it could happen but you know they will put you to death for you'll be hated by all because you're a christian you'll be hated by all um for his name's sake and it's like but not a hair on your head will perish by your perseverance by your endurance by your standing firm you will gain your life you'll gain life and so all persecution is within god's parameters and he um says how far and our goal you know is really to we don't hate others we don't hate our parents it might say like you'll be hated by by them but we don't um we don't love father mother me more than father mother sister brother you know um isn't worthy of me so it's not that we hate them but it's that we love god more we love christ more uh Jacob, I love it. Esau, I hate him. One text writer is like, he didn't hate Esau. It was that, you know, he favored Jacob. It's like, you know, we, we love God more. We love Christ more than we love our parents. And his reverence trumps our parents' reverence. And so seek peace and pursue it is what we're called to do. We don't um, seek hatred. We don't seek um, ways of the world, you know, these aren't our weapons. We seek peace and we pursue it. You know, within the context of marriage, you know, Paul and tells us that um not I, but the Lord gives them this authority. It's like um if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce him. Because the the woman if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him because the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, you know, if you have an unbeliever, especially in a time where there's great persecution, the church is just getting birthed in Corinth, and there's a lot of, um, a lot of financial stress, a lot of just stress in these, uh, new Christians and the persecution that was going on in the, in the times. And, you know, some of them, I mean, one spouse reached the faith, one spouse, spouse became a Christian, and the other spouse didn't. So now you're finding like, oh, you know, we got one that's a Christian in the house, and one that's not. What do we do? Do I divorce my husband? Because I, I to up Christianity, but my husband didn't, you know, and dad's like, no, 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 you know, it's, um, you married an unbeliever, you have this, um, sanctifying effect on your spouse, and so your belief, your faith has a sanctifying effect on them in a sense, so that your children have this, um, sanctifying effect as well, and so we see, like, you know, how, um, your faith doesn't necessarily everyone has to have their own faith everyone has to stand before god you know everyone has to profess christ themselves but you're being um in the faith has a sanctifying effect on the on the unbelieving spouse in a sense that um otherwise you know your kids would be unclean it says but as it is they are holy and so the same with your children it has like a sanctifying effect on them and um 
God likened that one day to me, um, for me, uh, to Israel. It's like, you know, God, what Israel, right? And it's like, because of God's faithfulness, right? It's because of God's holiness. It has a sanctifying effect on, on them, even though they want to stray, even though they're belting us, even though, you know, they're rejecting the Messiah and whatnot. But otherwise, their children would be unfaithful. Their children would be un- unholy, right? Unclean. And so we see, like, how God, even in the context of that, um, marriage with Israel, you know, those parables that he, he's given us, and um, even in the real uh, marriage household, as Paul tells us, um, there's a sanctifying effect of that, and so, you know, not to, um, if the unbelieving spouse wants to go, let him go, you're not enslaved in that case, you know, God calls you to peace, it says, he wants you to have peace if the unbeliever um, wants to go, then, then let him go. And he said, like, how do you know if you'll save your spouse? You know, you don't. You don't know. I know many times people might want to use that. They're like, well, without I'd try and, you know, offer them, you know, love Christ or salvation through this. But he's like, you don't know if you will or not. Passage here in Micah 4, he says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for the strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. And so that's kind of confirmed, um, well, one place is in uh, Jeremiah 31, where he says, like, uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will be, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Uh, this is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after the time, after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who steers at the sea so that it waves, its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel, Israel ever cease being a nation to me, before me. So it's kind of like, you know, God's saying like the old covenant that we had when I led you out of Egypt. You know, you, you couldn't keep your end of it. You, you failed. You weren't faithful to me, even though I took you by the hand. And even though I was a husband to you, you couldn't, you know, keep your end of the of the covenant. You couldn't, you know, keep your faithfulness to me. So he's like, uh, on that day, 
right after, after these Gentiles come in, right, the partial hardening on Israel. But on that day, this is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds, I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. So it's kind of a gift of uh, salvation. The Holy Spirit will, will then change their heart, take this heart of stone of theirs, and give them a new heart, and they'll um, be able to follow his ways and be faithful to him. And that kind of leads us then into the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And in Revelation 22, God tells us that they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they'll reign forever and ever. And that's just kind of God's um, full plan, um, working through all humanity until we get to the most, you know, new heaven and new earth. And um, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And that's what we are moving to. And that's when, um, you know, we don't need the sun or the moon anymore. It will be, you know... The Lord will be our, our light, and um, we won't need a lamp or a light or sun or any of that anymore. We'll all see His face. Just to add to that proof and that assurance again, um, in Acts, Paul goes on to tell us that um, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so that resurrection, you know, is the, the proof, the assurance, the, you know, testimony and, and fact of um, the events and the wonders and um great work God has done. And with the use of wheat and tares, we see that Gentiles are eventually grafted in. And so, um, you know, Paul asks this question kind of like to himself. And he says, like, did the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so we just see like how, you know, it goes on to explain like some of these branches were broken off of this root and Gentiles were like this wild olive shoot. He later tells us that they were grafted into this root that, you know, gets nourishing. And that was kind of like the the patriarchs that were the, the root at that point. And so he's like, these branches were the Jews. They were broken off because they didn't have the faith you know it was by faith that you stand and so um there's this partial hardening on them not not 
didn't stumble in order that they might fall. By no means. So they, their trespass led to salvation to the Gentiles. And hopefully when the Gentiles get grafted in, um, they'll make the, the uh, Jews jealous. And they'll be like, hey, that was supposed to be our heritage. That was supposed to be, you know, ours, our Messiah, our, you know, promises. And so um, hopefully they see that and want to um, be brought back in. And so... Um, he's like, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Like, how much more then when God grafts them back in after the Gentiles are all brought in? Like, can you imagine the riches that will be um, cultivated from all that? And so, um, we just see God's plan kind of um, to slowly r- r- unravel throughout history. He doesn't yeah, when Jesus was here in his ministry on earth, he didn't fully tell his disciples even that the whole plan of his crucifixion and what he was doing and where he was going and why. He kind of reveals like little hints at time, you know, of what the final plan is. And even in the Bible, we see like how God's mystery, this mystery that was hidden for ages, is slowly revealed throughout time. And, you know, finally God gives us this picture of what his whole plan was from the beginning. And it took a, a lot of uh, years to unravel some of these mysteries of God, but we have them now um, fully revealed. So what a blessing it is to live on the side of the cross and to know that and to see that. And so we know that God's plan was always to bring Gentiles in and it's now fully um, realized it in the resurrection. justice as well we just see how he established you know laws not only in the law of Moses but some of those laws we also have in in our laws today in the law of the land and just how God creates these um I would say they're kind of laws written in nature almost kind of like you reap what you sow you know those are kind of like natural ordinances that God established um how things will go as he does uphold the world and he does say like your lifeblood I'll require of you um, a reckoning. For every beast I'll require it, and from every man, from his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning of life of blood. And he tells us that, like, you know, um, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man his own image. And not only if a beast kills a man, God requires that beast to be killed, you know, in, in the law, but um, also... Um, if man sheds another man's blood, how much more you know, does God require a reckoning for that? We've seen that um, with Cain, how he got punished, but also when God establishes these ordinances and these laws, not within the law of Moses, but in nature, in general, that our lives are very precious to him, and God doesn't just wink at murder, and God doesn't just like you know take uh, life blood and human life, he takes it seriously. And so we see that um, whether it's a willful, willful murder or even premeditated, that God still requires um, a punishment and a, a reckoning for it. And um, especially willful murder is not something that he pardons. It's nothing that any ruler that he establishes shall ever pardon either. He says um, man's made in God's image and he sets up all authority, right? We should be subject to all authorities. Um, Romans 13 tells us, but he also said that, you know, they don't, um, don't resist the evil doer, you know, authority's not 
not established in vain. You know, they bear the sword, not in vain. So authority is supposed to be a terror to those that do bad. You know, it's supposed to be like this restraint, this fear like, oh no, if I kill someone, I might go to prison. Or like, oh no, if I steal something, I might go to jail. Or, you know, so authority is supposed to be established to um, a no fear on on those that commit these crimes or those that do these bad, that, these bad things and commit these sins and crimes, I guess, in the law of the land. And so, um, it would be like his judgment he gives to these uh, rulers and um, to countries and to nations and heads of these countries and nations that they ought to be established and um, willful full murder um, should be punished by by just punishment he says and no one should um, the sin which the Lord will not pardon in a prince is what Second Kings uh, 24 3 tells us and which therefore a prince should not pardon in his subject and he said that you know that's how dear God takes uh, the life, the lifeblood, the life that He puts in us, the life He gives us, like a man. And so um, it's just such a big uh, you know, heart, heart burden of God's that He you know deems all all people made precious in His image. And we just see like even um, how sometimes when we think like oh there's unsolved mysteries, unsolved murders, and how people like die and we don't see any. Um, just return for their death or any recompense or anything or any um, you know legal system fails god sometimes years later we'll rediscover those unsolved murders or we'll years later reverse something that was um mischarged and we see how god does eventually usually most cases justify these um these lifebloods that were taken unjustly these murders you know watch out many will come in my name but don't believe them you know there's gonna be a lot of false teachers but you know take heed many will say you know they're me but you know as far as the east is from the west you'll see my return and so paul kind of warns us in second corinthians that no wonder for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of, apostles of Christ. They want to act like they, ha- they claim that they're in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. And, you know, Paul goes on to tell them, you know, the commendation of his ministry and why... Um, he's suffering as an apostle and to be aware of these false um, teachers once again these false apostles and these you know angels of um, darkness and these uh, the works of Satan that disguises himself as an angel of light but he's you know really um, deceitful and cunning and you know pretending that he's um, uh, an angel of light, or he's a servant of Christ and a servant of righteousness. When we stop, we can tell by their deeds in the end. And so, just to tie all that back into our main verse and um, our our study, you know, like that's another reason why I guess it's like don't uproot the wheat and the tares, and you know, you don't know his timing and his plan and what God has as far as um, restoration and as far as you know, recultivating broken off um, branches and his um, plan. 
And so going back to our parable of um, the wheat and the tares growing together and just on these um, false teachings that intermingle in and the, you know, the wolves that we sometimes need to be aware of. And um, Paul urges Timothy in First Timothy to um, take heed against false teachers. And he says, like, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then he goes on to say, like, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, but understanding this is not the law laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their father, mothers, and murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice sexual Im- homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So there's just, oh, we even throughout all scripture, just these um, warnings against false teachers and these warnings to um, always, you know, be on guard and to take heed and what to do with those situations and um, to make sure that everything's always aligning with, you know, true doctrine and um, love that's from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's just kind of um, interwoven throughout uh, all scripture that we've looked at so far. One thing that God's been kind of showing me, I've been kind of asking God, like, you know, sometimes you make me some promises. And how will I know? How will I know? I know I, I have faith, but sometimes I'm like, you know, your words can mean a lot of different things. How do I know my interpretation, right? No prophecy ever comes by someone's own interpretation and sometimes when you read scripture and a word jumps out at you and you know you think God's saying one thing to you how do you know your interpretation of you know that verse is correct and I kept asking God like you know how do I know how do I know Abraham asked God how do I know right when God made this covenant to him and and the promise in Genesis 15 and God told him, you know, go bring me um, that heifer and a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, and cut it in half, right? And he told him to lay one half against the other, and, um, you know, God essentially walked through the half of that, and that was the ratifying of that covenant. You know, it, it depended on God. You know, if God fails this covenant, he would be half like those birds, right? It was like God upholding it to the utmost that he too would be cut in half like those carcasses if if he failed to uphold his end of the covenant and so um god gave me this verse in ephesians you know like our sealed covenant with him in the new testament now is the holy spirit right and he says like um how do we know now about our inheritance that was for the promised land and how do we know how do i know abraham asked him and then after the covenant uh, sealing the deal there, 
um, gotta show them, right? Gotta show them steadfast love. Gotta show them steadfast love. Gotta show them steadfast love. And so now, in the New Testament, we see how um, he tells us that we have this inheritance, the spiritual inheritance, um, predestined from, you know, before the foundation of the world, and um, in Christ, and so um, that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So I guess what God was showing me then from this, um, to the praise of his glory now in Ephesians, is that just like, you know, his promise um, to Abraham and how he, you know, ratified it and sealed it and, and verified it, we have this um, assurance in him as well that he's not here to harm us. He's not here to hurt us. He's not here to um, undignify us. He's here for the praise of his glory we're here his work in us is for his praise and and to his glory it's so these trials that i face or these um, sufferings or our burdens or these um you know just uh sufferings we have in this world and even these hard times that we go through that we can know or should they're to the praise of his glory like he's the first fruits and and we've seen that and and we can um, partake in that now that we know he works all things for those for the good of those who love him and for those who are called and predestined and so this praise of his glory kept coming up to me that okay we have this promise now that he's not here to to harm us to hurt us or you know for our um hindrance but it's for our, our our benefit because it's for his praise and so we can rejoice all the more in the god of our salvation we can rejoice in our trials and rejoice you know in our pain and our struggles and our toil because we know that he's working um all things the good and the bad for the praise of his glory and he's working um those in us until completion and so we just can be assured that even though i might not get the exact um interpretation of what this is i i can trust that you have my best interest i can trust that you'll work it out for my good i can trust that you're not here to harm me but you're you are good that's your nature that's who you are right and i can trust that you want my good and i can be assured that whatever it is whether it's um you know pain or toil or, or suffering or, or a trial that is to the praise of your glory now so that's kind of our that's how we know right that's our covenant promise with God who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory and so just like um God showed Abraham in Genesis 15 he starts off by saying do not be afraid Abraham I'm your shield your very great reward but Abraham said sovereign lord what can you give me I'm childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He's like, I don't have a child. What can you give me, God? Like, uh, my inheritance is going to go to my servant, <laughs> my slave. I'm like, can you give me an inheritance? Can you give me a child? I'm old. But um, Abraham continues and says, uh, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so at at that point, you know, God's like, no, 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 Eliezer, your servant, your slave will, will not be your heir. I'll give you the child. It'll be your own flesh and blood. He will inherit um, your inheritance. And he's like, come on, side. Look at the stars. Can you count them all? That will be, um, so, so shall your offspring be. And that word for offspring there is seed, not seeds, right? Seeds. And essentially, um, talking about the promise, Messiah coming, right? This, um, spiritual inheritance and this spiritual inheritance coming through Jesus Christ, right? The seed was singular there. And that's, um, again, verified in the New Testament, um, when spiritual inheritance is going to come from, uh, Messiah, Jesus, right? Eventually. And it'll be as numerous as the, as the stars in the sky. And, um, they will, will all have this same inheritance as you do. And, and your own flesh and blood will, will, um, carry it out until this seed comes, right? Where the spiritual blessing comes. And he says, um, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram. And that's when he made this, you know, come and that's how they made their promises back then. And so it's kind of like God um, sealed it for Abraham with that uh, covenant promise there and with this promise of this land and then the spiritual um, inheritance as well and so we see now um, in Ephesians and so Psalm 33 tells us uh, the Lord brings the counsels of nations to nothing and he frustrates the plans of peoples but the counsel of the Lord stands forever and blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen um, as his heritage the Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned he looks out on all the inhabitants of the world of the earth he who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds the king is not saved by a great army a warrior is not delivered by his great strength the war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Remember again, that was like, sh- have shown, have shown, show me your steadfast, have shown your steadfast love. And this to the hope of his glory now. So those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death, keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Remember that steadfast love, again, is that said love, that um, covenant love of, of God that, um, you know, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord. You know, that that um, steadfast love of God that's um, unbreakable through his covenant. It's just a good reminder in Habakkuk, you know, he is not sure why God is using, you know, the Babylonians to punish um, Israel. And he's not sure, you know, why 
these things are happening. He doesn't understand um, how, you know, God's using this uh, nation that was their enemy to um, afflict them, and he didn't understand God's plan and and why. But he says, like, even though you know it's a time of famine, even though our, our fig trees don't blossom, even though you know there's no fruit on the vines, even though the all fails and the field yields no food, and our flocks are cut off from the fold, like we lost everything, you know, even though. Um, our stalls I have no more herds in them um, and he's like I will still rejoice in the Lord I'll take joy in the God of my salvation he's like even though our bread's cut off you know I don't live on bread alone I live on the spiritual bread that you gave me and that's stronger than, than any of these other things that we could have had during this time and he's like you know the God the Lord of my strength he makes my heart strong through these spiritual battles. He's my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He'll return me to my land. He'll make me, you know, rise above my enemies. He is my strength. He's my stronghold. He's he's my joy. He's my salvation. He's my bride. He's my all. And he, you know, says to the choir master with string instruments, he's like, this is my life. This is my experience. This is what I lived through. This is my spiritual battle. This is, you know, what God done has done and used me for and, and how he's worked in and through all this and in me and through me he's like to the choir master like let's make it a song let's polish this let's you know sing about this let's you know praise god with this you know through the ages through the churches through you praise worship god to the choir master and corporate prayer corporate thing corporate praise publishing make it a poem and rejoice in it to the poet this is my life praise the lord seals the deal with the holy spirit and so that we who hope in christ might be the first to hope in christ um to the to the praise of his glory so it's kind of this uh, new covenant in a way that we are the first to hope in Christ um, to the praise of his glory and um, when you first heard the Lord word truth the gospel your salvation and believed in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and that was our guarantee of this spiritual inheritance until we acquire possession of it how do we know how do we know how will we know well this is how I, I'll seal it with my Holy Spirit and um he says that as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved and so now we see how realize now in Christ I guess in the first fruits of that and this um, hope that we have in him to the praise of his glory. And then going back to our Eliezer example with Abraham and this promise with the seed to come. Galatians 4 once again tells us that, you know, I mean as an heir that 
As long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. Adoption as sons. And so he's kind of telling us, like, when we were a kid, we had parameters, we had rules. Eat your veggies. Clean your room. Uh, wash your face. Do your homework, right? We had rules that guided us and kept boundaries around us and parameters around us that kept us safe so we know we knew how to walk. We well, saying now that Christ has come, we gave up these baby principles, these childish ways, these childish parameters that we had, and the fullness of time has come now that the son who was born under the law fulfilled the law entirely and perfectly um, is now um, has now given us the promise of adoption as sons into this spiritual household now this spiritual um, faith that's by grace and so we can cry out Abba father right daddy father now we can um, look at God as our as our father as our dad you know that wants these good things by his grace for us and we're adopted in now and we don't have to fear approaching God anymore because he allows us to approach his throne boldly now with the righteousness of Christ and we can come to him like a kid uh, coming to their dad and we know that we are we fulfill the Christ fulfilled the law for us and we have the righteousness of Christ on us now so we can approach him like a dad adopted in to this um, household of faith a spiritual um, family so he's saying like you are no longer a slave but a son if a son then an heir through God formerly when you did not know God you were enslaved to those by nature that are not God's but now that you've come to know God or rather be known by God how can you turn back into weak worthless elementary principles of the world whose slave do you want to be once more you want to be a slave again to weak principles of the world no, now you're under the principle of God. Like now you're uh, known by God. You don't want to turn back to those um, earthly principles that were set for you. And I don't know if you ever heard any of my other podcasts, but I had one that was um, labeled, uh, titled, uh, The Sign That Jesus Gave Them for Turning Over the Tables. And that, um, actually, that sign is... Abba Father, right? That's why I tell it. And that's because when Jesus um, flipped the tables, you're turning my my father's house into a den of robbers and thieves, right? It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, right? And the Pharisees and the religious people were all like, Why, what sign do you give us for doing this? And he said, uh, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up, right? So he wasn't talking about this temple. He's talking about his body, the crucifixion. And in three days, he'll be resurrected. So the ultimate sign of, you know, all that <laughs> is we cry out, Abba, Father, like, Daddy, now we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. We can approach the throne of God boldly now. We are, you know, released from this law. We're released from this um elementary principles that were put over us and we can now come before God as, as like a child coming to his dad and ask him anything we want any request and we know that he hears us and we know that um he is our, our good father now he is um our daddy that we can cry out to him and approach his throne not with fear um of any kind of punishment or condemnation but as, as a child coming from the, their dad you know like with all due respect and reverence of course but 
we cry out, Abba, Father, adopted in to this household of God, adopted into this household of faith, if you will. Well, I hope you guys enjoy studying um, these kingdom stories with me and this Word Go um, series that we're doing. I'm just very grateful for their services and for their study and their um, questions and content that they provide for us and for the study that we are um, all able to do together. Um, I've been in BSF for, for many, many years, and so I'm just grateful for this online content and the online studies that they've now provided and just for God's lead and, and promptings for um, encouraging my heart to um to this online study with y'all. I'm so grateful for Anchor and for other um, podcast availabilities and just for being able to anchor these studies down and um, reach a broader um, spectrum of people through these uh, technologies. You know, technology can be used for bad, but can be used for good as well. And so I'm just wanting to use it for his glory and for his kingdom and for this reach that these tools provide us and just to um, recap our study today and the questions that we have uh, gone through. I hope um, you enjoy what God's been teaching me um, through uh, these verses about his judgment and the timing and concern for the crop and um, just the difficulties in distinguishing between believers and unbelievers. And so those were kind of some of the key verses and key um, scriptures that God was connecting for me through the Old Testament and the New Testament and just his ways, how um, they don't change, you know, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and um, praise him all the more for that, so um, please um, join me in prayer. God, thank you so much for your word and for just um, the lessons that you continually teach us and how you guide us, Lord, in in the way that we should walk. Thank you for um, holding us all accountable, the whole world accountable to you, and that no one will be declared righteous in your eyes, Lord, by the works of the law, but rather through the law we became aware of our sins, Lord, and it was by your grace alone that we are um, made righteous before you and made right with you. So thank you, Lord, for your son and for um, his redeeming work on the cross. May we um, be ever more fervent in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.